0: Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, And the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. In today's episode, I interview Jason Knight, who is the director of Alderleaf Wilderness College, and we explore the idea of how people's mindsets about what they're capable of get disrupted when they have new kinds of learning experiences, especially with things that they're unfamiliar with. We also explore the idea of how our awareness gets expanded depending on our environment, and in particular in nature and with natural systems. And we also share some perspectives of embodied empathy and what it's like to ground ourselves into the experience of another. But to start this episode, I I want to share a few ideas that might seem kind of unrelated But that have to do with what we find aversive and what we find appealing, or another way to say it, what we tend to avoid and what we tend to approach in life. Much of that is very influenced by the people around us, particularly when we're younger, but also right now in our current social circles. And so I want to just bring up a concept that goes back to when you were very little And you first learned to locomote. So you first learned to actually move your body from one place to another. And you were able to mobilize yourself to move away from your caregiver. That's a pivotal moment in the dynamic and the relationship that you have with your caregiver. It is the moment where they no longer can just be sure where you're going to be which is the case when you're not moving and you're not able to do that. And so what that does is it creates a a few different changes. As you are able to venture away, your caregiver now has to be somebody who actually prohibits action because you may wander too far. You may wander into things that are dangerous for you. So your caregiver now has to really act as an inhibitor in some sense. They also need you to know that they're inhibiting by using a signal that is through generally their voice and their facial gestures and things like that, stuff that can be conveyed across air, can be conveyed across distance. And so what these changes do within your relationship is one, the fact that your caregiver now has to become somebody who prohibits certain things that you do and you are now increasing in your ability to do more things, you start to have a power struggle in a certain sense. And there can be a lot of challenges associated with that. There's also, because you do not have enough data to work with to know what is safe or dangerous, there is also uh, an aspect of child development where you check in with your caregiver and you are looking to them to assess your situation, to assess your environment. And this is called social referencing. So this is where we refer back to somebody, generally a more mature person whose care we are in, and we refer back to them to understand and assess what's going on. In order for this prohibition to happen, your caregiver has to kind of dampen the mobilizing and excitatory circuits that are going on as you explore because those are circuits that are going to get you to approach and get excited and there's like an excitation and a sense of energy that's happening so in order to not have you go too far your caregiver the people in your environment need to dampen that. and so one mechanism that humans use for that is what you could call like disapproval or even shame. So, a look of that is not going to encourage more excitation. So, in order to really clamp down on that, that is why we use the word no and any kind of mechanism that looks like we are not happy with what they're doing. So, that's the benefit of it. It helps us be able to not have to learn through trial and error and actually get hurt over and over again in order to know something isn't good for us, we can use social referencing as a more efficient mechanism to do this by gleaning off the knowledge from a predecessor, from somebody else, from another conspecific, which is a member of the same species as us. the tricky part of that is that caregivers bring in their own past experiences and their own algorithms that they have formed throughout their lives and this can distort in a way what they find to be truly dangerous and unsafe and what we should be afraid of and what we should avoid and so what we need to understand is that some of the things that people around us as we were growing up and now find aversive or avoid are things that are not necessarily life-threatening and don't necessarily need to be avoided. But there is past programming, in a sense, that's coming from that. So some of those examples would be like social dangers, like being rejected or not looking cool, not belonging, meeting people who you're not familiar with, meeting people who are very different than what you're used to, looking stupid. Those are social dangers that are not life-threatening, But there may be a lot of anxiety associated with that and that was occurring when we were young that as we used our caregivers as a social reference, we were picking up on many of their signals and frequencies that were associated with their internal state that came with failure or rejection or trying new things. So it's just something to keep in mind that many of the things that we aren't even aware necessarily that we're avoiding Or that we are actively avoiding, there can be some aversion to it that is not inherent within the thing that it is, that there is actual programming that you've adopted over time that makes you feel like something is not appealing or even dangerous when, in fact, there isn't anything inherently harmful about it. And some examples that I've just seen over the years, working a lot with families and children, is that. There can be things like being very afraid of dirt or certain bugs, or even the chance of scraping a knee is so aversive to the caregiver that they prevent their child from exploring those things to a degree that really limits the child's exploration. I also see on that social side uh, a fear of looking bad in their social circles if their child doesn't do well at something. And so, keeping them, gearing them, in a sense, to the things that they know they will do really well and staying away from some things that they might be interested in but wouldn't do so well in. And I bring this up because when we are restricting the variability of experiences that we have, we are limiting the data that we are exposing ourselves to. And our brains are built off of algorithms. Our brains are using algorithms all the time to solve all the problems that we face and they they may not seem related to each other but the way that our brain approaches problems and approaches situations there is an undercurrent of how it's doing that based on many of the algorithms that have to do with just problem solving in general and what we pay attention to how expanded our awareness is how many different perspectives we can hold at one time whether we are thinking about longer time periods and other systems that are interplaying, all of that kind of stuff. And the more variability, the more perspectives we have, the more varied kind of experiences we have, the better those algorithms get because it allows us to see patterns across time and space, across systems, but also to see exceptions to things we think are true. And those are all really important things for us to integrate into our awareness and our understanding of problems. So that we don't just fixate on one idea and think that's absolutely the cause effect. A causes B kind of linear thinking. So our logic models start to become more complex and sophisticated. One other aspect of this as well is that we have in a lot of our lives, in a lot of our routines, a limitation of how much sensory motor variability we are including. And so that also is limiting the kinds of circuits that are firing within our mind, brain, body system. That again is a lack of variability. The more variability we can experience on that sensory motor level, that's also giving our brain just more information, more data. And as a dynamic, complex self regulating system, the more data it has, the better it gets at self regulating. With all of that, that has a lot to do with why I'm bringing in the season. And that's a lot of what we cover in today's episode. We are talking about how we use our senses in very interesting and new ways how we use our hands and our limbs in these new ways and how we are expanding our mindset, expanding our awareness and disrupting some of the limiting beliefs we might have about our abilities. Those are all a bunch of things that come into today's episode and I really enjoyed my conversation with Jason. I hope you'll excuse, there were some audio difficulties, so it, I'm just jumping right into the beginning. We had some more introduction, but it jumps right in because of the audio cutting out. Thank you also for being gracious as I learn to integrate the, this, these kinds of interviews into the season, and continue to learn about and hone my skills for interviewing. <laughs> so thank you for joining me for this episode. And I hope you find something helpful in here and I hope you enjoy it. I just want to preface our conversation for the audience as to why why I decided to invite you on the show, why I was inspired to do that, Mm -hmm. is that a big part of my content is to help people optimize their brain functioning, their brain, body, nervous system functioning. But something that I have found in the last few years working in mental health clinics and high performance kind of innovation labs, things like that, is that something that was missing was one, a more, a deeper understanding of how we use our bodies and how we get grounded into our experience. And also a lack of really exposing ourselves to variability and unpredictable environments and conditions, things that would really test out the resilience of our mind, brain, body. So, It started to just feel more and more important to me to start talking to people and engaging in my own learning of exposing myself and all of us to variability of environments and natural systems and how we engage in really flexible problem solving by not being in our automated behaviors and all of these very repetitive things that we're doing. So I was inspired to have you on this podcast to bring kind of new ideas to my audience of very new ways of optimizing our brain functioning. So uh, with that, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about you and your journey and what has inspired you to be in this field that you're in.
1: Yeah, cool. It's Well, it's been a lifelong passion of mine. I've always loved the outdoors. And uh, I think came down to this one hike I did as a teenager, uh, where it was kind of a hairy situation where we're on this mountaintop and the storm moved in and we weren't prepared. And my buddy twisted his ankle and took us into darkness to like find the trail down. And, uh, we were lucky to make it out. I think we were probably slightly hypothermic and dehydrated when we made it out. And so it kind of sent me on this journey of like learning about wilderness survival and, uh, went to all these different schools and teachers and integrated with a college degree. And, um, I just found the skills to be unbelievably transformative. Like when we build this like deep connections with nature, I feel like it unlocks so much more potential in us. It's something that all our ancestors knew how to do. And it's something we've become disconnected from nature and kind of our modern society. And I think that's, you know, contributes to maybe some of the challenges we face as a, as a society and as individuals. Um, so you know, it was around college time, I started working for different wilderness schools and uh, working as a wildlife biologist as well, studying mountain lions and wolves and bears mm-hmm. and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we started Alderleaf, I think it was about 2006. And uh, it was kind of on the side while I was still working as a wildlife biologist, but then just grew from there. And uh, one of the main courses we ran for a lot of years was training adults to be teachers at other wilderness schools, because there's there's been a growth in these like outdoor schools around the country. When I first got started, there was only a handful, but now there's like several in every state, you know? So there's an, you know, a lot of growth in the field of like wilderness schools popping up, but um, there are a lot of schools that have difficult time finding qualified staff. So we ran this program for about 20 years, training folks to be teachers at these different outdoor schools. And uh, so it really helped these programs. A lot of them get off the ground and be successful. Uh, So yeah, a little bit about my background, you know, so I, again, I, you know, I got into it at a young age and turned into a college degree and uh, got to work all over the country with different folks. Worked for the, worked for the Discovery Channel a little bit and tra- mm-hmm. got to train the cast, the Captain Fantastic and
0: oh, uh, yeah,
1: really yeah. fun things like that.
0: What do you notice in people in terms of things that change within them, maybe in, in terms of their thinking or behavior? Like do you notice any changes after people have taken courses with you? Yeah.
1: I mean, it, it's, I think it's a little bit different for everybody, but, you know, for a lot of them, you know, maybe survival seems like this impossible or difficult thing. And I think once you get some training in it and do it and see that it's really possible, I think for a lot of folks, it makes them realize that there's lots of, you know, maybe dreams they have that aren't quite so impossible. Hmm. Um, you know, like I think of this one, uh, student who was, uh, uh, grandmother. And she was when she came to the class, she was worried because of some of the other students were younger. A lot of the other students were younger. Um, but she became the best at like making fire with friction and uh, uh, you know took it home and shared it with her whole family, and it became a wilderness EMT. so wow, you, you know, and um, yeah, I think about another student we had. She was um, she was unhappy with the job she had and came here. and then, it, the wilderness education just inspired and like empowered her to like just go after her dreams like big time and became one of the top wildlife trackers in the country and uh, finished a master's in wildlife biology. And now she's working on all these cool conservation projects around the country. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, for a lot of folks, it can be this like like this fuse of like just amazing things, uh, you know, happening down their life as it like empowers them.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That's uh so it's almost like a, a paradigm shift, a mindset shift that happens. As I get there, yeah,
1: yeah, it's 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 interesting. You know, like I think wilderness skills—they're they're fun, they're interesting, they're also like super practical life-saving skills. Like if you were to get lost on a hike or be stuck in a natural disaster and the power and water goes out, they're kind of like the the foundational skills for staying alive. Um, but then they they kind of trickle into these. This give you this type of confidence and. Mm-hmm. You know, believing in yourself, I guess, you know, when you okay. do these, when you can, when you can take care of your basic survival needs, you know, suddenly, you know, thriving in the, if you, can, you feel like you can thrive in the wilderness, then thriving in the modern world, you know, feels like totally doable as well.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's, it's neat because I, I've been taking different courses as well on just things that I've never done before. And I would say that there's this increase in confidence, like being able, you know, even I did the survival fire skills, like I've never created a bow drill before. I had no concept of what that even was. Mm-hmm. And then to just do it, to do this thing that I was com- completely unknown to me, skills that are absolutely not familiar to me at all, was very empowering. Is there a myth or like misconception or misunderstanding people have of survival skills?
1: I, I think so. You know, I think with like the popularity of the survival TV shows, I mean, it's fantastic on one hand. And then on the other hand, like some of them romanticize survival and, and make it look easy. And then other ones also can go the other direction and make it seem impossible. Like it's just going to this, be this horrible suffer fest. And, mm. you know, it's, it's somewhere in the middle, right? It's like, uh, nature is what it is, and uh, and that's what's amazing is you, you never know like what curveball is going to be thrown your way, what the weather is going to be, or what you're going to encounter in the field. You know, I think. Some people maybe feel like, oh, maybe I'm not tough enough, or I'm not, or I'm too old, or I'm not, not outdoorsy enough. But it's something that's like achievable for everybody, you know. Like like that student we had was a grandma who could be it was like the best at bow drill of anyone that's oh. come through. You know, I've had a kindergartner make bow drill fire. You know, so,
0: wow.
1: so it's something that you know we all can do. Like I said, our ancestors did. It. It's in our DNA. It's it's really natural, and it's I think it's an amazing extension of environmental education. Like it's unfortunate that like so many environmental education programs they just focus on like. Nitrogen cycles or the water cycle, like all these, you know, I- ideas. But what I love about wilderness survival it gets you interacting with nature and making things with what you find and interpreting what you find. So it's not just the name of a plant, but like, oh, this one's edible. Let's taste it, you know. Or, right. or this one, you can you can uh, heal a heal a wound with it. You know, let's put it on a, a scrape. You know, so okay. there's something about like when you when you make something from from say a, a tree, like you make the fire from the cedar tree or or you eat the stinging nettle, you have this stronger connection and you have this more desire to appreciation for it more desire to take care of it and protect it. So I think it builds like a conservation ethic, you know, over time as well.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. So, and you're kind of making me think yeah. of the different senses that get engaged while people are there. In that sense, how do people activate more of their senses or heighten their senses through, through this kind of education.
1: Well, I think for a lot of folks who maybe don't do this, like when you go on a hike, the the forest might look like a wall of green. Like that's what I can remember it being before I knew all this stuff. And then when you start to learn these things, like all of a sudden you start to recognize everything in the forest as like different allies. Like when you can recognize the individual trees and shrubs or identify a track or recognize a bird call. And and so you start to notice them everywhere you go, and and some people will call them like, oh, I you know the the uh, red-tail hawks have moved into my neighborhood. In fact, it's been there all along. It's just suddenly you you have an awareness for it. So it's it's growing skills, but also growing awareness. And I really do. I think it does activate a lot of our brains. You know, I'm not a neuroscientist myself, but just a lot of these skills, like you can go down the field of tracking or start to learn about interpreting bird language. You're using not just your vision to interpret the world around you, but you're listening for the bird sounds. You're noticing smells of animals, like if you're trailing an animal and getting close. You're, you're feeling the ground, like whether it's soft or hard and, or wet. And you're, uh, you know, you're using your whole body to engage with what's going on. You're feeling the direction of the wind, temperature changes. Uh, you're noticing the, where the sun is. You're trying to keep a bird's eye view from up above of like where you are on the map, on the landscape. Um, yeah. all these things come into, especially like when you're tracking, you're trying to understand what's going on in the animal's mind and where it might be now and how it was perceiving its environment. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, a, I mean, that's a huge teacher for like getting it, expanding your awareness is like these animals have different dominant senses than us. Like our dominant senses are our, our eyesight, but for say a deer, it might be hearing or for a coyote, it would be the sense of smell. And so because they perceive their world differently, they make different choices as they move through the landscape. And so if you can try to get inside their mind, then it's forcing you to like use your senses in a different way.
0: Wow. that's There's so many powerful metaphors I see and parallels with humans too. Like just in the sense of that, I call it embodied empathy, which is where you actually are, are really trying to put yourself in the body of another person but in this case an animal and like see see the world or perceive the world how they're perceiving it like that's very there's a lot of powerful brain activity that gets involved in that it's taking us out of our very self referential where everything is in relation to me how do i expand those networks activate different networks which is that's really cool and then the, it was neat to hear you talk about how you have this new awareness and as you understand like the interconnectedness of it that you see allies. That's a really interesting concept. Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. So so like if you say you build a debris hut shelter, it's like a shelter made out of sticks and leaves that can uh, allow you to survive a cold night. I may mean, have been in one even when the temperature got to single digits and it snowed out at night. I didn't even know. Hmm. Um, but once you've built one, when you take a hike through the landscape, you'll notice like when you go past spots, like, oh, wow, there's a lot of really good materials there, like the right kinds of leaves and sticks, you know, or... Same thing when you when you make um, bow drill fires, and if especially if you go and make a kit out of wild materials, like as you take a hike. You're like, oh, there's a good cedar tree with the right kind of dead branches, or there's the right kind of willow tree, or the cottonwood branch.
0: Oh, yeah, I get that.
1: But, yeah, same thing. Like a food, or you know, all kinds of things, or a stone that you can turn into a blade that you you could use to you know whatever you need to chop up your firewood and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. See, that's that's really getting to that what I was saying in the beginning of engaging engaging the system we have that is built for really flexible kind of problem solving to be able to take almost anything and create something out of it to create some sort of tool out of it so i feel like that's just something that is missing for a lot of people right now and i work with a lot of younger people as well and the thing that i i think is causing a lot of issues is the fact that we have this these screens that are, it's the same surface over and over again. It's the same motions over and over again. And it's the senses were not even like, for example, the internet, there's no smell. There's no temperature changes. There's no texture changes. Okay. And I think that the fact that everything is so repetitive and, and not multi-sensory based, I think is really damaging actually for, for our brain it's basically removing information and our brain is our, this brain body system. It's a self-regulating system. The more data and the more information it has, the better it gets at its algorithms, the better it gets at predicting things and navigating and understanding how things are tied together and patterns and all that. It just makes us better at solving all of our problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's just cool to hear you talk about that, how we're, we're engaging in, like we're expanding our awareness because that's the other thing that I really see for a lot of people is our awareness is getting extremely narrow and very myopic, like very close, very nearsighted and we're not expanding out that way. So that was something I would say I noticed at, at the course too is just exactly like what you're saying because we were looking for things and trying to use them as tools, all of a sudden as you walk around, you just start to notice more. I think there's so many parallels for what I think many of us need in our life, which is to engage more of our senses. And another thing too, is our hands. I think that we're using our hands in too repetitive of a way and we're using it for self-soothing and consumption a lot of the times, but these are tools too. These are technologies. So I'm kind of curious too, if you have, what kind of ways people use their hands in different ways?
1: Yeah. Well, we, you know, we're carving a lot of things, obviously like with the bow drill kit, you've got to carve a kit, you know, learn how to do wood carving with a knife and cedar is yeah. a super awesome wood to work with. And, it's uh,
0: awesome
1: too. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> awesome stuff. Like, you know, the, the indigenous people around here called the tree of life because they built their houses from it. They would split planks of it mm-hmm. off of old growth trees to make their long houses. It was, it was, uh, they would make from the bark, they would make containers and clothing and hats and sandals and everything. Of course, we can, you know, we can make friction fires from it. It's antifungal. You can make medicine out of it. It's amazing, mm. it's an amazing, amazing tree. Wow. Um, but yeah, we do all kinds of things we're we working with our hands. Like we're making stone tools from like river rocks all the way to like making beautiful arrowheads out of volcanic glass, obsidian. Wow. Um, wow. we'll do bow making. So we're using a whole bunch of other tools to make bows and arrows. You know, we're building baskets, which there's all kinds of techniques for making baskets. And so yeah, I mean the field of wilderness skills, there's like unlimited projects of like cool stuff you can make mm-hmm. you know, other types of friction fire, hand drill fires, fishing equipment, making cordage out of plant fibers, you know, like a stinging nettle or dog bane and all these other plants can be turned into a string and rope. And yeah, that's so just, cool. It's just awesome. Yeah. Like we're, like I, said, I agree, a lot of young kids don't work with their hands very much, you know, and you notice yeah. it when they, when they come to a class, they're not used to using tools or working with materials or mm. um, having hand strength, that kind of a
0: thing. Yeah. So. Because a lot of people in my audience are are educators as well. And so I, I like just bringing up this new perspective also of thinking about how can we engage learners in ways that where they're not sitting in a chair, they're not using the same motions over and over again. So I think the educators out there, if the more they can bring in this kind of learning, like natural and natural systems, That kind of thing. I think we're we're setting up kids to use their brains in much more adaptive ways. That can be applied to education. It can be applied to business. It can all of because it's all about that flexible problem solving and thinking. One other thing I was just noticing too from your other interviews, I think you also do permaculture. Mm-hmm. That you teach about that. Can you just say a little bit about what that what that is?
1: Sure. So so permaculture, it's, I mean, it's an, to me, it's a natural extension of wilderness survival. Like we talk about wilderness survival, is like how can you survive a short-term emergency in the wilderness. Whereas permaculture is like, how can we live long-term in a sustainable way that's working together with nature? Um, So it's pulling in all the best of, of like growing your own food and water, rain catchment and water systems and alternative energy and natural building and uh, like all these aspects of living sustainably and putting into sensible design. Like the word permaculture means permanent agriculture, um, but really is it's it's designing based off of natural systems and integrate getting everything to integrate and work together really well.
0: Mm, very cool. What is there anything that has surprised you in in engaging in that?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a constant learning process. I think you know there's always going to be unexpected things like with our our gardens and such. We're always modifying. You know we we built this. Um, thing called a chicken moat. It was something that's a, it was in one of the permaculture books. And so you you have your main vegetable gardens and then you have a chicken run uh, going around it. So it's a double four foot fence, four feet apart. And wow. what's awesome about it is it keeps like the deer and rabbits out of your garden. But then <laughs> your like garden scraps you can give to the chickens. And then the wintertime you can run the chickens through your garden and <laughs> uh, you can trellis things up the fence. Neat. That That's pretty neat. But then let's see what happened with that. It was like, the fencing we originally used was good for excluding adult rabbits, but not baby rabbits. So baby <laughs> rabbits got in. <laughs> so, so, so you adjust. We added some smaller chicken wire to the bottom two feet, you know, that fixed that. So, you know, you're always adapting. But like we raise fish in a couple of our ponds. We, we ha- we've had dairy sheep for a while. We have fruit trees and nut trees everywhere. We have a root cellar, a cob oven, uh, solar panels, yeah, we do a lot of things for for res- resilience. I mean, reducing our ecological footprint, but also just being more self-reliant. Like that's the other, one of these side effects of learning wilderness survival is you then get the b- building blocks to be ready for like the power outages and the storms and the natural disasters. Mm-hmm. Like we look forward to it. Like my I got an 11-year-old daughter And she loves it when the power goes out. Like if it starts (laughs) getting stormy or the forecast, I hope the power goes out. (laughs) (laughs) Then we just fire up the wood stove and like we have our, our well like pumps water up to this 1200 gallon tank that's up on the hillside. So even when the power's out, we get gravity fed water and 1200 gallons is plenty to last us a long time. And even if we ran out of that, we just scoop a bucket up out of the pond or the Creek and then boil it. and We're good to go. And then, yeah, we've got big gardens. So we've got, you know, root vegetables in the ground, you know, or some some of them we store in the root cellar and all our apples we have loaded up into the root cellar. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we're not like off the grid or completely independent, self, self-reliant, self but we have enough of it where it's like, you know, we we feel really good about it and you mm-hmm. know, we get excited about it.
0: So. Yeah. I, I met someone recently um, in Vancouver and they had just started their doing a Homestead. I think they're in their second year. He was saying that it's really exhausting. Um, like there's just so many curveballs. but what I was reading, I think from something you had written is that it takes a long time. It's, it's a long game. Like it's not, you're not trying to be completely self-sustaining in a short period of time. It's something that builds.
1: Well, we, we've, we had our, we got our campus for Alderleaf in 2008. So we've been up here for 14 years, um, kind of, yeah, building the the permaculture infrastructure here. And that's and that's never ending, you know like you're we're we were working on the the sheep shed this last weekend, you know, and uh we rebuilt one of our greenhouses last year, and so um it's one of those things that's just ongoing, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, you can go as fast or as slow as you want to go, like s- some folks like just try to do a whole lot at the beginning um like one of our one of the things we did was we did mostly observation of the landscape for the first year, like we wanted to see what was happening um, with the natural world for a year on our site before making any major changes. Like we want to understand how water flowed through the site, where the sun sectors were, uh, where the dominant winds came from, how wildlife were using the site. And so then we could like layer all those observations of the natural world over four seasons into a map and then try to strategically place things in the right places. So maintain wildlife corridors you know, put the gardens in the sunniest spot, you know, get the bees off to the side where there's not going to be in the way where, where people are going to be, that type of thing. Mm,
0: that's really aligned with the system thinking that I, you know, I play with a lot, which is really trying to see maps and I call it expanding the space and time horizons. So trying to see all the nodes connecting and over time too. So that's really, that's really powerful for the brain too, to engage in that. So just to kind of wrap up, like, um, I'm curious, do you have a a favorite project that you're, that you have right now? I mean, maybe you don't have a favorite, but something you really love. Yeah. I
1: I have a few projects. Can't say too much about them yet. All I can say is, um, there's some cool stuff coming up and, uh, you know, folks were interested in this type of thing. Like we have a, a free newsletter, you know, you can get on our newsletter and we do like monthly articles on on different wilderness skills and updates on what's coming up on our schedule. So we have some cool things that we'll be able to announce to the world late in this latter half of the year. Yeah, I, actually, one thing I can talk about is I've been really passionate about our online course on wilderness survival skills. It's been really popular during the pandemic, and we've been just adding to it and uh, improve, expanding that. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that course. I think it's a lot of like something was asked for for years. If we didn't originally have it we had all these in-person classes and for years and years, it was like the number one request is like, oh, I'm, I found your site and I'm on the other side of the country. I'd love to start learning these things, but I can't travel out to, to Washington State. Um, so people are asking for a way to learn remotely. And so folks can find that on our, our website. Um, and uh, and then we've we even got like some free lessons. Like if you join our list, you know, we have a little series of free survival lessons we send out.
0: Can you give the URL of your... Yeah,
1: it's wildernesscollege.com. The, the Alderleaf website's Alderleaf Wilderness College, but the website's wildernesscollege.com. Yeah.
0: And I'll, I'll include all that on the, my website as well. And uh, maybe just a final question. If, there, if you could recommend one book for people just to inspire them into this world, because there's many different worlds that you're playing in, but would you have a, one, one or two book recommendations?
1: yeah i I do and i'll I'll say a couple of things that say our same email list like we have a free mini survival guide and we're happy to oh, give cool. folks, which okay. is like a it's a short introduction to get started. And we have like a whole library of like articles on wilderness skills on our website. So we've really tried to make our website like a great introduction to this whole world. But as far as survival books, there's some classics out there. Ray Mears is a really respected survival teacher out of the UK who's traveled the world studying with indigenous people and teaching survival skills for different environments. So I I love his books. Let's see. uh, And then there's Morse Kachansky from Canada that has like the northern bushcraft, so for like colder environments. He's a highly respected survival teacher as well. So there. Oh, and uh, and um, my colleague Mark Elbrock co-authored a book with Mike Puther, um, out of New England, and uh, they have a uh, they have a survival book they put together, and um, that's pretty oh, great. Good as well.
0: Then I'll I'll add them to the to the webpage too cool. for the audience. So. Well, thank you so much for adding this flavor and this new, this world to my audience. There's many people in my audience who I think are familiar with some of these things, but a lot of them are not. And I really like the idea of bringing more of our interaction with nature and these like complex systems and multiple intelligences that we have not been using into our daily activities and into just our, even the programs that we're creating for like mental health and well being I think would be really powerful. I really see it as some, these are some missing ingredients right now. And just with all the different challenges we're facing in our world, whether the human, human ones or the, or other ones, it requires this flexibility. It requires this heightened awareness, this expanded awareness, seeing allies and seeing things as tools and expanding our repertoire of how we can use things. These are just, it's just stuff that I think we all really need in today's world to deal, to deal with everything that we're dealing with. So I really appreciate what you're doing and what you're bringing to the world with that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. So thank you so much. And um, we'll continue talking and I'll put up all your information on my, my website. Thank you for joining Jason and I for that interview. I hope you found something in there helpful. You can find more information about Alderleaf Wilderness College at the website he mentioned, which is wildernesscollege.com, and I'll list it also on the webpage. So just to update also for the season, I'm going to be posting a couple more interviews. They've already been scheduled and or have happened since I posted this podcast. Also make sure to check out my YouTube channel. I do post videos on there from time to time, and I don't always put newsletters out for each one of them. I try and compile some of them. So make sure to check that out. It's youtube.com slash C slash Stephanie Fay, and subscribe to that. And I'm also sending out a survey to my female audience about the possibility of holding a retreat. It's something that I've wanted to do for many years and there will be two separate programs. One of them will be for adults and children to really look at self-regulation and co-regulation skills. So it will be a mix of neuroscience teachings but also some exposure to nature and play-based learning a lot of interactivity, some mindfulness, and things like that, as well as an adult-only retreat for helping people understand how their childhood experiences have played a role in their current nervous system and stress responses. So those are some things that I wanna play with. They won't be for a while, but I would like to get a sense of interest. So if you are interested in participating in that survey, If you're an email subscriber, then that will be in the email that went out today as I posted this podcast episode. But if not, you can obviously subscribe and I've included in the the automatic email that comes with a subscription. Or you can email me at hello at stephaniefay.com as well to ask more questions or just let me know of your interest. And I also really appreciate if you enjoy my podcast and my content if you can subscribe and leave a five star review, that really helps me in in sharing this content more widely. The more positive reviews I get, the more people click and listen. So if you if you believe in me and you believe in my content, then I would really appreciate any support you can give me. And one of those ways is through five star ratings and and uh, subscribing. So thanks so much for all of your support. I get incredible emails on a regular basis from people and it really encourages me to keep going so as many of you know I'm writing my book right now so there's not a lot of feedback I get along the way and uh, the emails that I get from all of you and the ratings and reviews that I get really help me a lot they give me a lot of encouragement thank you so much for all of your support and for listening and please let me know if you have any questions and you can contact me through my email. Thank you again.